Hello, everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn about something I like, and I hope you like it, too. <laughs> that is hopeful. Yeah, I yeah. do hope. So I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And this week is part two of two, don't worry, <laughs> of birds, bird adaptations, behaviors, all that good stuff. Yeah. But this week, it's all about bird song and, you know vocalizations yeah all like that good stuff. i want to fly like an eagle and bird is the word all those songs no these are sounds that birds make so you should have made a joke about like an eagle's song that that would have made much more sense no i was making a joke about songs about birds songs about birds not yeah, bird songs, songs by <laughs> by birds like the eagles hotel California. We, I, okay we could have made plenty of Hotel California and Take It Easy right. types of references. But, but you didn't. That's for later. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I mean, this is just a huge topic. Like, oh. we, we need to... Get need going? To dive right in. Okay. We're getting going. So how about you teach me something? Okay, so to keep it basic, to start out, and because I'm lazy, we're just going to do like a five W's and how approach to this. A what, where, when, why, and how of, okay. of bird calls and songs. So who? We're going to start with who sings. Which the birds eagles. sing? <laughs> it was topical. Yeah, keep going. yeah, that one. That one was okay, yeah. Um, songbirds make up almost half of the world's 10,000-ish bird species. Um, so that's like everything that you can think of. Finches, warblers, thrushes, sparrows. About 5,000. Cardinals. Um <laughs> That's some quick math there, I know, Robert. it is. Um, it's not to say that other birds don't vocalize. You've obviously heard probably every type of bird you've ever seen make a noise. Yeah. Um, they call, they make sounds with their wings even. Um, the vast majority, though, of non-songbird species make simpler sounds that are instinctual rather than learned. And that's one of the big okay. differences. But it's really a complexity issue about what's a song and what's a call. So, as you could probably tell, there's some disagreement, there's some fine gray areas, who knows. Um, but, so, calls are less rhythmic, that's another thing. Um, so, melodic rhythmic, like, there's a certain pattern to song that calls don't necessarily share. Um, songbirds obviously call as well. They have different types of vocalizations, like, okay. you know, singing will do one thing, but calling is, you know, communicating a threat or, like, something else. Um, now, when when do birds sing? I think everyone knows when birds sing. In the shower. Oh. I, I, I don't think I've ever heard a bird singing in the shower. Yeah, but that's where most people sing. And as we know, birds are people. So, mm-hmm. that Big bird nailed was, it. Kind of. On the inside. <laughs> it's creepy. Um, I think that... I sometimes feel, and I, other people probably do as well, that birds like only sing in the morning just to kind of wake you up and annoy you that you wake up and go, oh no, the birds are already singing. I have to get up soon. Anyways, um, okay. that perception is pretty accurate because birds do the majority of their calling in the hour before and after the sun rises. Okay. Um, so kind of like that two hour window. Um, one, re- I mean... I'm going to say one reason and then some more reasons, but in general, we don't really know why that is. There's something called the dawn chorus. If you look it up, dawn chorus, 
it'll uh, and your area it should tell you what the dawn chorus in your area consists of what types of birds because it's such a prevalent thing birds sing at dawn that's just a thing okay we don't really know all the reasons why because there must be more to it with how what a prevalent it is is. yeah Yeah. um but here's some reasons to keep flock together for one um a lot of songbirds live in large flocks and during the night, some birds can become separated from the flock. And when they sing, they can come back into the group. Um, early mornings are too dark to search for food yet. And too dark for predators to see them at all. There's no background noise or less background noise. The air is still. So sounds actually carry 20 times further than it would later in the day. So it's like there's nothing else to do. And also the singing works really well. So we're like, maybe these are some reasons. You want some attention. A little egocentric. They're just bored. I don't know. Nothing okay. else to do. Fair enough. Um, if you want to hear birds singing at nighttime, you'll, of course, find those as well, because there are exceptions to everything in the animal kingdom. Um, some birds sing at night so that there is less interference and, like, competition with other birds and their songs. Okay. Um, so this is different than a nocturnal bird. These birds are birds that would normally be awake during the day, but when they really want to find a mate, for instance, they're going to stay up at night and and sing. Which is like, surprises me because the females just have to, what, wake up in the middle of the night too, just to hear these songs? I guess so. Apparently. So like... And what, the females in that case have to go find the males? Yes. Okay. That is, that is the thing with the bird song. Sure. It's a, it's you know... Um, so the Northern Mockingbird and the Eastern Chat, which I, I like that name, um, are, are examples of those not, not normally nocturnal birds that sing at night only seasonally when they're looking for a mate. Um, some birds like the Whip Will from, you'll remember last episode. Oh, poor Will. Whip mm-hmm. poor Will. Um, doesn't sound like that. <laughs> we talked about them last week. They are nocturnal and Obviously, then they'll call during the nighttime. Uh, the common this loon. Makes sense. The common loon. If anyone's ever heard a loon, like yeah. think back. Was it sunset? Probably it was sunset. If you've heard a loon. Uh, okay. <laughs> sure. Or just around, just after or before. Loons love to call at sunset. Okay. Um. And, and as far as like when in the year birds sing, um, most of them almost all of them only sing in spring, summer kind of thing. Um, the Northern Cardinal sings in the winter. It's got Northern right in the name. It's quite adapted for this. But the most singing done in, in the spring by the males trying to get a bait. Um, where? Where do birds sing? Uh, when they're trying to attract a mate, a male will choose a conspicuous perch to hop around on to okay. be easily seen. Um but they don't sing near their nests because they don't want predators to know where their nests are. So they want to be agile enough to get away and not give away a, a permanent location. Exactly. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes though little baby birds make a whole lot of noise from the nest when they're hungry and need a snack, mm-hmm. um, which can cause predator problems. Um, some species, like larks and buntings, uh, are known to sing while flying. But it's not uh, very often that a bird can do that. It's a lot of air movement and it's impressive. Um, Okay, let's get more in depth here. How does a bird sing? With its mouth. 
mouth has little to do with anything. They don't have lips like we do. Mm-hmm. They but- can't change the shape of... Um, I would say that that is one of those answers that is technically correct. Perfect. The best no right of information <laughs> for us here. Birds and humans look different. What? Shocker. I know. You just called birds humans earlier, so I know you're really confused right now, but I think you're learning a lot right now. Yeah. Um, wow. Birds and humans sound different. And in fact, we've evolved completely different organs for our voice production um so that's my first question answered birds don't sing the same way humans sing we use different organs but there is some relatively new research from 2015 that we may use different organs but we actually use the same exact physical mechanisms to make our vocal cords move okay which is what makes sound yeah um so We kind of do sing the same way after all. The mechanism we use to sing or vocalize, you know, just make noise, um, has been known for over 60 years. And it's called the Mead mechanism, which is myoelastic aerodynamic theory. Oh. Mm -hmm. Fun stuff, right? Bringing theory into this now. Um, Yeah, I'm going to get all intense. Some scientists think that Mead theory might even turn out to be like a widespread mechanism in all land vertebrates. But this just really hasn't been looked into much yet. Okay. Um, the lead res- researcher on, on this project, Dr. Elements, um, him and his colleagues studied six different species of birds from five different avian groups. Um, and they used like this big range of birds uh, to try to get the best results, all the way from the teeny tiny zebra finch that weighs 15 grams to the ostrich, mm-hmm. which does not weigh 15 grams. No. It weighs 200 kilograms, by the way. That's Hefty. a little bit more. That's why it doesn't fly. Yeah. Um, so all the all the studied birds um, were revealed to use the mead mechanism, just like humans. Even an ostrich that definitely doesn't sing. So, you know, that's just how they make sound. Same as us. I'm pretty sure I've seen cartoons where they sing. Where ostriches sing? Yeah. Where they have something to do with Bugs Bunny? Or... Yeah. Yeah, okay. Sounds right. So in the human voice box called the voice box larynx oh um, air... you had given me the answer there already <laughs> air from the lungs is pushed past the vocal cords which then start moving back and forth sideways like a flag fluttering in the wind mm-hmm. you can all see my hands fluttering right yeah i can yeah um <laughs> with each vibration the larynx is gonna close and then open so like stopping and starting the airflow That creates the sound pulses. And then the speed of what's called the vocal fold oscillations. So the speed at which it's shaking back and forth um, is going to determine the pitch of the sound. So during what's called normal speech, I have no idea who that's normal for because everyone's voice is different. But what's called normal speech, some average thing, the oscillations are happening 100 times a second. Okay, sure. Fun fact. <laughs> During one of the highest possible opera notes, the oscillations occur at about 1,400 times a second. So that's kind of the difference. And um, if you're curious, like I was, that note is a high F6, which occurs in two separate arias in Mozart's Die Zauberflöte. 
which is the magical flute in German. It's apparently one of his most famous operas. And one of the reasons it's his most famous is because of the the two songs with high F6, which isn't even in many operas. Apparently, it's a kind of cool story. Like, he wrote it for these two singers that, like, could sing it, sing these notes. Sure. And, like... Since then, they've been having a really hard time finding anyone that can sing the notes like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was rare. Um, So, one second of normal human speech or song is going to, you know, therefore contain like hundreds of thousands of vocal fold oscillations. Yeah. During each of the oscillation cycles, a wave travels over the vocal folds from the lungs to the mouth. And that kind of keeps the oscillations going, like all the way up to when the sound comes up it's like okay. a wave of sound starts to come out of your mouth basically makes sense i mean we're talking about um, oscillations and waves anyway yeah. so so what about birds well humans have known since at least 1646 that birds do not make sounds with their larynx hmm. and that was discovered by a famous french anatomist um duvernay when he noted with great surprise that the beheaded chicken in front of him was still making sounds but the place where there would have been a larynx you know in humans is cut off what the what the what the heck yeah so vocal sounds in birds are made by a special organ that only birds have called a syrinx sounds kind of similar to a larynx uh yeah <laughs> the syrinx is located um at the very like the, the bird's windpipe goes down, like the throat goes down, and then right where the chest starts and the lungs start, like okay. that is, uh, it's low down, it's deep down in there. Um, so it's been, you know, hard to study because it's so deep within the bird's body. It's hard, like with an alive bird to see what's going on in there. Yeah, right. Um, so this study that, that this element's, scientists just did um they filmed sound production in birds using high-speed cameras uh so that they can show for the first time that birds are also producing sound according to the the mead theory and that the syrinx and larynx do operate in the same way but it's different from our larynx otherwise we would have named it the same thing i guess (laughs) i guess so and Um, plus you said they have a larynx as well i don't um no I'm unclear on the concept. Okay. I tried to kind of figure that out. The language made it seem like when like they kept saying like it's you know they don't use their larynx as if they have one, but I actually couldn't. I don't, okay, I don't know. Unknown. Should have done ever more research. But this is already twelve pages. Now I bet I can Google it easily. Now that you asked me that specific question, but like I said, twelve pages. It's okay. We'll give we'll give the listeners their own homework. Yeah, that's right. You go figure that out, listeners. If you care. Um, so birds, syrinx, different than our larynx. It has two separate tracheal tubes, two windpipes, basically. Okay. Um, that's that's cool because it can cause duetting within one bird. Um, they have separate windpipe muscles at the point where um, it branches down to the two lungs. Mm-hmm. So they alternate their exhalations and produce two separate sounds at once. Um, which is the reason that sometimes you hear a bird singing and you think that there's lots of birds around and you can only see one bird and you're like, what the heck? 
You're not like going crazy. It might just be the one bird. Okay. Makes me feel better. Very cool. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's other cool vocal tricks that that leads to with, um, so the Northern Cardinal, again, we're going to bring him up again. Um, he's able to go through more notes than are on a piano keyboard in a tenth of a second. Cool. Because each branch of the syrinx is individually controlled. So it can start like a sweeping note with one side of the syrinx and somehow seamlessly switch to the other side without stopping to breathe. Very cool. And it's, it's kind of like a trill noise. Anyways, it's, it's, yeah. that's cool. Um, so continuing my very sophisticated five W's and how. Do you have to say and how or does that automatically assume when you're... I don't, I don't I know. I was assuming that you were just going to leave how out when you said five W's. So I th- it's good that you left it in. I think I clarified at the beginning that you there did. was going to be how. Five W's and an H. Because we just did. Did we not just do how? (laughs) I think I just told you how birds sing, so. Kind of. So, kind of. Oh, is there something else you wanted to know? No. I was just leaving it open to, you know, if if, if that was, I didn't know if that was a segue into Morehouse. No, we're going to go to what? I see. We're changing gears back into W's. What? They all go together. You know, when you took a class, it's like, here's how you write a newspaper article. First, you answer the five W's and how. Like, nope. Oh, well, whatever. I'm learning more about that too right now. (laughs) What does a bird sing? So, you may know that one, one thing a human brain is super good at is pattern recognition. True. That is a characteristic of human brains. We're so good at it, in fact, that our brains tend to recognize patterns that aren't even there. I've heard so, that phenomenon before, yeah. <laughs> so, for because of this, for time immemorial, human beings have been making up lyrics for bird song. So, there's so many, and I was having a good time. So, here's a few. Yellow warblers sing, sweet, 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 sweeter than sweet. Common yellow throat warblers sing witchity, witchity, witchity. <laughs> the oven bird, which is a type of warbler also, sings teacher, 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 teach. Oh. Yeah. Nothing about how, like, your oven's, oven's ready. No. Yeah. The American bittern. I like this one. Gulp a pump, wunk a chunk is apparently. That's what it the sings. most unique so far. Um, the eastern tohi sings. Drink your tea. Hmm. I mm-hmm. like that one. The song Sparrow sings, Maids, 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 please put on your kettle at a little. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. it goes well with the drink your tea one. Right. And then the Carolina Wren sings. This one's my favorite. Ready. Cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. <laughs> I like most of the ones that you left to the end. That's good. They have good messaging. So... The last one I'll leave you with is apparently the barred owl sings, I cook for me, who cooks for you? Hmm. I mean, it's an owl, doesn't it? Just say hoot. But. It just emphasizes the who cooks for you part. I think some people have some impressive imaginations, I gotta say. It's true. It's It's pretty fun. So. Bird songs are specific to a species usually, and that so the females can use the song to ignore other songs and just find their males. Um, 
But if this is the case, if the song is specific to a species, so a female can easily identify them, why do males sing variations of the same song? Oh, for they each of their do. sweethearts. They... <laughs> no, no, no. The same male will always sing the same song. Oh. But another male of his species might sing a slightly different version of the same song. So what up with that, basically, is what I'm saying. And it's not just to be unique? In, like slightly unique from the other males? I mean, you could go ask them, but I don't think that's the reason. Okay. Okay. In the late 50s, early 60s, a man named Peter Marler was busy discovering the concept of dialects mm-hmm. in birdsong. In terms of human language dialects are like regional variations of a language it might be different in pronunciation or vocabulary or grammar but it should still be similar enough to have intelligible conversations with someone that speaks a different dialect so which is actually apparently a point of contention about the definition of dialect but i don't i'm not going to get into linguistics okay i don't find it interesting oh mostly you heard it now just now, it won't be a topic. Probably. <laughs> so, examples, obviously, French, Canadian, and Parisian French. Or American English and British English dialects. Yeah, or the rest of Canada and Newfoundland. Yeah. Newfie is definitely a dialect. <laughs> yes, it is. Very but, entertaining one. But is it mutually intelligible or is it its own language? That's questionable, Yeah. So it turns out that's a pretty much the same thing for birds. Um, Peter Marler first noticed this phenomenon in chaffinches. Um, birds that lived near one lake sounded different enough that he could notice it was different from the next lake over, but he did note they were both singing the same song. And when he brought the two birds um, together, they didn't understand each other. Man. The, da- oh, the jokes are coming out of you tonight. Oh, like, just, just following your groaners. logic. They're oh, They're good. They're good. I like it. So Peter Marler moves to the University of California to study this phenomenon. He chooses the white-crowned sparrow as his study subject. And he found that sparrows living in Berkeley had a distinctly different dialect than the ones living 50 miles north. In north of Berkeley. Yeah, there was a town name, but I don't, I mean, it's nothing I've ever heard of, so who cares? We'll just rename the town north of Berkeley. I mean, 50 miles north of Berkeley sounds descriptive enough for my purposes. Yeah, exactly. So now, nowadays, we do know dialects are a common phenomenon for songbirds. Um, In some species, the birds live in small neighborhoods like a mile in diameter, but each population within that one mile diameter area will sing different dialects um that going back to marler um at the time him and his colleagues they hatched white crown sparrow eggs in their lab and they hand raised them um and they found even if the birds had never heard a bird song before in their lives they did start to sing around day 150 all of them really all of them sang around day 150 and it was Um, the same song even if their dialect was that's the thing is their song never developed into the full song of their species okay they twittered and they got some parts of it right, um, but they never sang the full song of like a wild male white crowned sparrow. 
um, which shows us that there is an instinct to sing something mm-hmm. that is genetically predisposed. Like, they know they should sing. Um, there is a timing thing that's obviously genetic as well. Yeah. Because, or instinctual, because, it, you know, they didn't learn anything. They've never met another bird, which is sad, but okay. Um, DNA studies that they did later of white-crowned sparrow populations showed that, like, there is indeed little difference genetically between different dialect groups of white crown sparrows so it's um the the urge to sing may be instinctual but not what they sang that part Um, was nurture right so they wanted researchers wanted to see how the birds learned the song do they just have to hear it once and then they could copy it do they need to spend more time with it you know adult male trying and failing and like being taught or interacting or what so they designed an experiment where the young male sparrows were isolated in soundproof chambers and they were played tapes of yeah. the sparrow song. Um, and these birds, like the ones in the first studies, they started singing around 150 days old. Um, at first, they sang an incomplete version of the song. It wasn't great. But by 200 days old, they were not only singing their complete version, but singing it in the dialect they heard on the tape because they had right. used some some of the Berkeley white crown sparrows and some of the north of Berkeley, Mm. white-crowned sparrows. Um, The most interesting thing from the study, though, to me, is that uh, the birds were only played the songs for about 40 days. So when they were 10 to 50 days old, they were played those songs. They weren't played any bird song after that. And then at day 150, um, they started to sing, even though they hadn't heard it in 100 days. Right. Um, So it imprinted very early on. Right. And what Marla learned is that that's necessary. Yeah. If you wait to introduce them to birdsong until they're at day 150, they're not going to learn it. It's too late. Yeah. Yeah. Also, he played song sparrow songs to some of them to see if that would, because it's it's a different song. Yes, different species, but there are similarities. They're sparrows, right? Like, would that help them develop their own song? Would they start to sing song sparrow songs? Who knows, right? So he played song sparrows to one of the trial groups. Um, Yeah, didn't work. It didn't help them sing more complete songs. Their songs were just as bad as the birds in that first trial that had never heard a bird. So we get a kind of clear picture of what must be going on a little bit here. At At the early age, their immature brain is able to store some information selectively. That only if it's recognized it's from a white crown sparrow will they somehow store or be able to use that information. Yeah, it has to kind of resonate with them, basically. Yeah, and so months later, when the birds already start singing, it must access this memory or knowledge somehow and compare what it sings to what it remembers, and it practices. And it practices the notes until it can match the correct note that it remembers or hears in Mm -hmm. its brain. And then it moves on to the next part of the song, and it works on its song until it, it matches what it hears. Um, so it really is like an imprinting. Like, they they imprint the tone and the notes and the tempo. I mean, the tempo I read and... something that compared it to, like, a file folder that they had to access in their brain and a file yeah. that they had stored in there for later retrieval kind of yeah. um, description. Um, and you've obviously noticed that all these experiments are done without any social interaction like these birds are socially isolated that's obviously was necessary to control the trials but doesn't give you a full picture of what's going on because that's not how birds live 
Right. Um, well, it's how those birds lived. <laughs> yeah. The ones in the trial. So they wanted to test out, obviously, what was going on if they actually saw a bird. Um, because there were observations of wild white crown sparrows singing the songs of other birds, singing white song sparrow songs. And they're like, well, how does that work? Because ours never sing song sparrow songs. Mm-hmm. They put young hand-reared white-crowned sparrows in cages where they could see and hear adult song sparrows or strawberry finches. Either or. Okay. Different trial groups. By the way, strawberry finches are beautiful. I googled it. They're like red with the white spots and black tips. Anyways, you should google it. They're pretty. Cool. Um, all the birds grew to learn the adult bird's song it was paired with. Okay. But they had to have interactions for longer than, like, the first 40 days, basically. Mm, Not necessarily, but there is something about... There is something about the face-to-face interaction. Okay. Whether it was mm, kind of trial and error, like, they could try something and then the other bird calls again and they can hear it again like there there's something about social interaction that develops that has extremely powerful developmental effects on their singing mm-hmm. okay and i can't really explain it much more than that because sure. it's a little up in the air still <laughs> um we As know most birds are right oh god <laughs> not ostriches no. or emus but our cassowaries no. or some chickens Oh, psychic damage. They're pretty down to earth. We now know that social factors influence song acquisition in many other birds. Like this is, since then, people have taken that and run with it. Mm-hmm. Um, a great example of this is the fact that so many birds, when raised by humans, have the ability to mimic human speech. Like parrots. Like parrots. But I didn't know about some other ones. So European starlings are amazing mimics of human speech. There are old folk tales where a person is searching in vain for someone that they hear speaking. And then all along in the story, it was a starling. And uh, they've, been, they've been able to say things like just any kind of funny things. People have been able to teach them phrases and laughing, coughing, kissing noises, all that stuff. Here are my two favorite phrases from the first study to see what, what they could teach them. Okay. See you soon, baboon. And that is a good one. That's basic research. Mm. I want a bird to just sassily <laughs> say that to somebody. <laughs> That's basic research. <laughs> Other birds that can mimic human speech. Yes, parrots. Okay? Yes. Got it. Um, parrots and songbirds are really the only two human speech mimics. Except maybe for a duck. A duck. From Australia. Called Bitsuria lobata. Is that just because it's hard for us to understand Australians, Aussies, and therefore we just confuse duck sounds for Aussies sometimes? You know that that there are Australian scientists too, right? I am aware of that. (laughs) They probably can understand I'm just saying their dialect is different than ours. Um, I mean, again, fair enough, because when I heard this tape, I didn't really hear what they were talking. Anyways, here's the thing. This is... Uh, common name the musk duck the musk duck 
Great needs name. to be researched further to confirm. Okay. Because this is a new thing. So early last month, and oh, very recent. Because this is not a live show, I should clarify. September 2021, mm-hmm. a tape was rediscovered from 1987. Okay. And on this tape, there is a musk duck named Ripper. Okay. From a nature reserve. And on the tape, apparently, like I said, I'm not sure I hear it. I kind of hear it, but Ripper is heard saying a phrase over and over and over, which sounds an awful lot like, and everyone is saying, day, is him saying, you bloody fool. Oh. You bloody fool, you bloody fool. Apparently, he says it to everyone at the reserve. Okay. And apparently, according to people that have worked, that worked at this reserve in the 80s, Ripper had a wonderful keeper who very often called people bloody fools. So, anyways, we need to confirm this, but there's a question about maybe these musk ducks can speak and call people bloody fools. Okay, that's kind of fun. So, what about genetic factors? Kind of going back to before. Um, Is this what... a Seinfeld bit? Seinfeld bit? What? what about genetic factors? No. Okay, fine. I don't have any clever like stand-up comedy to deliver here. Um, genetic differences between males and females is a place to start since we know there are singing differences between males and females. So yeah, it's good to check out the genetics first, right? So fun fact, again, I've given you so many fun facts. In birds, males are the homogametic sex. Okay. And females are heterogametic. Two gametes versus one gamete? (laughs) <laughs> no, that'd be bad. Yeah. That'd be real bad. What's the... Homo and hetero. Yeah. So, like, same versus... Or, like, evenly mixed versus... Same versus different. Yeah, you were getting it the first time. I know, but there's also... So... Homo... Yeah. That's because it's same mixture. That's yeah, what homogeneous means. Um, homogametic means same gametes. Heterogametic yes. means different gametes. Okay. So... In humans, and I mean, in mammals. In mammals, we've got XX and XY. Mm-hmm. XX is homogametic, same gametes. Right. Those are females. XY, heterogametic, hetero, two different gametes. Those yes. are males. But in birds, it's the other way around. Okay. Males are homogametic. They have two Z chromosomes. Females have a Z and a W. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, this does mean that in birds, the ovum is going to determine the sex of the offspring. But then there's other stuff in birds and eggs that determines, you know, sex determination. Um, it's different in a lot of different animals with eggs. <laughs> sure. The avian W chromosome has many fewer genes than the Z chromosome. This is, again, similar to mammals, where our Y chromosomes have many, many fewer genes than the X. The Y chromosome is a third the size of the X chromosome. Hmm. It contains about 55 genes. The X chromosome has about 900 genes. I couldn't find the exact numbers like that for bird chromosomes. I looked for a while. Um, But I did find several sources saying that proportionally it's quite similar. Okay. As far as how few are on the, the W and how many are on the Z. 
Um, the W is thought to be a fractured and smaller version of the Z chromosome evolving that way over time, which is the same way we think the Y chromosome came about, kind of a broken X. Okay. You know. Which makes sense when you look at an X. Exactly. You could easily break that thing into a Y shape. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, the Z and W is maybe not quite as <laughs> easy for me to imagine, but that's Yeah. Fine. So because males have two of the much larger chromosomes, maybe there's more room for certain genes or certain factors that could uh, help with singing. That was one of the first thoughts that people had. Um, and then, again, we're, we're really not, we haven't answered a lot of these things. So these are just thoughts people have had. Another thought, um, and this one we've kind of looked into, um, is to think about hormones because hormones are obviously different between males and females and that is influenced by your genes, which hormones you produce. So developmentally, male birds rely on testosterone for singing, of course, for lots of things. But when scientists tried to study that link, they realized there was kind of something missing and that is estrogen. Mm. Estrogen is vital to sing. That's the key hormone for males to sing. Cells in the male bird's brain convert testosterone into estrogen okay and the estrogen is essential to develop the song control system which is an area of the brain that's required for the male to sing a song correctly kind of like how we have a language center yeah you know song control system yeah so i think the way that they tested the theory was pretty cool they inserted estrogen tablets just under the skin of young female um, zebra finches and so normally there are certain clusters of brain cells that grow rapidly in a young male as they age okay. and shrink rapidly over time in females so they kind of start the same when they're really young and then the males that area gets bigger and females that area gets smaller and that's a you know song control system song control unit should I say um, with the females that had the implanted estrogen their song control units increased in size Okay. Instead of decreasing like a male. Um, so funnily enough, males, females don't have enough estrogen or not in the right place in their brain or something. Yeah. And males do because they make it out of testosterone. Interesting. Right? It is interesting. Is estrogen used in these birds similarly to humans in terms of like reproduction and re reproductive health and, and development or? Yeah. Yeah, okay. they're definitely still involved in those things, but, but it's just not it's the levels or location right. that is making some kind of difference. Yeah. Okay, got it. Um, so those are kind of the what, how, when, where. We did we did it all besides why. I was going to say, um, I wasn't actually keeping track of the W's or the H's. Well, the H. The H was easy to keep track of, but the W's. Well, it's a good thing that I wrote this whole outline and you don't have to keep track of it. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, why do birds sing? I think we've touched on it briefly a few times. Um, if I was actually going to explain like the evolution of birdsong thoroughly, I would have to get several more very long books from the library and mm. read them all. And ain't nobody got time for that. Right. To quote a very old internet meme at this point. Oh dear. Um, but yeah, I mean, some people probably do have time for that. Okay. Um, but I'm not getting paid for this, so yeah, I don't. You're not one of the people with the time for that. Yeah. So quick and bare bones version, which is still four pages long. So fun stuff. Because they want to. 
<laughs> I just shortened it for you. Thank you. I want. It's hard like to quantify to. want in animals, isn't it? We yeah. just don't know their brains. Even though we're kind of going a bit out of order, I want to kind of get back a little bit to the dialects we talked about because I want to talk about the why of dialects before we jump into the why of song altogether. Okay. Um, why are there dialects? The first level answer to that is that dialects are just an inevitable consequent no inevitable result of language and having separate populations yeah. and um isolations and and yada 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 yeah um any birds that learn their songs are bound to develop them right because there's the every copy it's going to be slightly different and then there's just room yeah there's yeah. room for variation when you've learned your song um and and that makes sense that if a song works particularly well, uh, you know, a slight variation of that song works better in an environment that the young males are going to want to copy that one. Mm-hmm. Um, like this makes sense why there should be a dialect for that area and a different dialect for another area. Um, but like to a little deeper, not all types of singing birds learn their songs. Interesting. There are definitely types of birds that come pre-programmed, as it were. Um, instinctual song. So learning is a factor for some birds and not for other birds. I have to say that much more... We're going to talk about this at the very end, but um, the fact that these white-crowned sparrows and these finches and all these... There's called the model organisms for science, like particular organisms that are well-studied and easy to work with and they're, like, easy to keep comfortable and happy in the, you know, environment, lab environment... They get used over and over, and so you kind of miss out on differences in in other types of, for instance, birds. Um, We've kind of focused a lot on the white-crowned sparrows, and that doesn't give us a good picture of what all birds do. Right. So just so you know, there are birds that instinctually know their song. It's just more interesting to talk about the learning because there's some to talk about there. (laughs) Um, So it's energetically costly, though, to have to learn your songs. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's an element of practice. Yeah. yeah, there's 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 a whole lot. It's energetically costly to develop the part of your brain that needs to learn songs because you need a bunch more brain power to do that than just to spit out something you have instinctually in there. Mm-hmm. So why why would uh, why would they learn songs? Why why'd that happen? Environment is the biggest is the biggest reason. Um, the cost benefit analysis, the benefits of changing up your song are worth more than that big energetic cost, then you'll do it. It'll happen. Of course. Um, again, this is all not willing evolution. This is not on purpose. I know that the language we use when we talk about evolution implies that organisms are making choices or doing things for like they're deciding to do things. They're not, but it's just the easiest way to talk about it. Um, so here's an example of uh, an environmental influence. Male satin bowerbirds that live in the dense parts of the forest sing songs with low-frequency notes. Those satin bowerbirds that are in more open areas of the forest tend to sing uh, with more high-frequency notes. And the study, when, when they tried to figure out what the reason was, they, they concluded that the trees would degrade high-frequency sounds. Yeah. So if you're in a highly treed area you should stick with the low-frequency songs. Um, Another example, the great tit. 
sings a shorter, higher pitch song when it lives in the city and a lower, longer pitch song when it lives in the forest. Um, the reasoning behind that one is that traffic noise is made up mostly of low frequency noises. I was going to say, it's to stand out against the, you know, scatter of background. Right. Sounds. It's not trying to be louder. It's trying to be different. Correct. Yeah. Different pitch. Um, so when speaking about environment, we also can't forget the social environment. Um, the way the females and uh, their males and whatever react to them is part of their environment. So um, there's been studies that showed males that sing a local dialect father more offspring than males with an accent. Hmm. I think that's different than with humans. <laughs> You're right, most people. Most, most humans find accents sexy and exotic, so... That is that is different. Mm-hmm. Birds are just discriminatory, apparently. The, wow. Mm. Wow. I, I don't know if we can trust birds anymore. But okay, keep They're going. problematic. So another thought is that females can hear slight variations in the male's songs and then somehow find out vital information about him, like like his health and immune system and other things to pass on to her offspring. Sure. Um, so that would, of course, affect dialects as well. Um, okay. Getting back to the why of bird calls. One reason birds vocalize is to maintain social order. Um, Songbirds, like I said earlier, tend to live in big flocks. And to keep a big group organized, you're going to need a system of social order. And then, you know, vocalizations will shape and reinforce this packing order. And, I got that one. That was good. Right? Okay. But then I, I wrote that and I thought I was being really clever. And then I was like... But that's like, also what it means, isn't it? Um, yeah. Exactly. I was like, okay, well, this is about birds. I should look up this expression. So, um... Comes from chickens, doesn't it? Sidetrack. It sure does. It's a term invented first for domestic hens in 1921 by Norwegian zoologist... I don't want to say this. Okay. Thorleif Schilderup Ebby? Cool first name. I, I... Yeah, let's go with Thorleif. I used his last name a few places, but I can't say it very well. So in 1921, Thorleaf Thorleaf wrote wrote that term in his PhD dissertation on the behavior of chickens. Except for that he's Norwegian, so he did not write packing order. He wrote hackliste. The hacklist. I don't know if I'm saying that right because I don't speak Norwegian, but here we go. German. I can do this one. So it was next translated to German mm-hmm. as hack ordnung. Which literally is packing order. Anyways, okay. it was it was first used in English in 1927, and you know it means exactly what it sounds like that dominant hens peck the less dominant hens, and so on. I'd heard some stories about it's like you know the most dominant hen pecks the next most dominant hen, and it goes down the list in order to the finally to the hen that doesn't get to peck anyone else. Did you learn that on a cartoon called Bob's Burgers? Maybe. <laughs> I don't have a strong recollection of where this comes from. Oh, well, because there was an episode where one of the characters said exactly that kind of little speech. Oh, that's good. So maybe I um, learned it there. Bob's Burgers, very educational. Birds also call the warn others are predators, tell other birds or animals to back off, yada, yada, yada. But those are vocalizations and not songs. Mm-hmm. So songs. Why do some birds evolve the ability to sing? Because we talked about like half don't. So why did some birds, why? Well, I'm pleased to say 
Then now Rushmore. I can talk about Darwin. Theatric. Oh. Oh. Yeah, Darwin. Wait, what did Good. you say? The ones that developed song were just far more theatric. Oh, okay. Yeah. No. 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 Okay. <laughs> so close. So close. Um, thank you for trying, though. You're welcome. So this makes sense, though. We get to talk about Darwin because we're going to talk about evolution. Mm-hmm. And I love to talk about those two things. This is a specific subset of Darwin's theory. His theory was, if you'll recall, evolution by means of natural selection. Yep. But uh, natural selection wasn't the only type of selection that Darwin ended up describing because he also coined the term sexual selection. Sexual selection is simply the concept that certain traits are maintained and maybe exaggerated, not because they actually help the animal survive, but because they attract mates and help the animal reproduce. Right. Uh, the main theory being, being we needed this to explain why traits that sometimes were even detrimental to yeah. animal survival would be maintained and even amplified. Um, amplified. And the reason is, like I've said before, be the fittest you just don't need to survive for long you just gotta have lots of babies before you go out right yep um so here's what we kind of end up with male songbirds sing to attract mates and compete with rivals and ever since darwin these songs have been widely acknowledged to have evolved through sexual selection it's like one of the most usual examples teachers use about that it's really it's kind of a basic understanding um if you're wondering how song might have evolved, here's the, just like these things always do, here's the pattern. You know, the last common ancestor of all songbirds, that species of bird. Mm-hmm. Some of those males, or females, we don't know at the time, but you know, some of the birds must have experienced a small mutation that made the vocalization slightly more melodic, slightly more pleasing to the ear. They had more babies. Those genes increased in the population, then eventually another mutation happened that made the sound just a little bit nicer to listen to, and on and on and on, um, until millions and millions of small mutations later, song as we know it has evolved. Right. This is just generally how things will happen in evolution very slowly over a long period of time. How long? How long, Everett? Avians first diverged from dinosaurs how long ago, is my question, Everett. Do you know mm. how long ago we could say that that happened? 650 million years ago? No. In fact, it is much shorter than that. Oh. Um, fossil records suggest that modern birds originated 60 million years ago. Birds. We're talking about birds, not avian dinosaurs, to mm, be clear. Okay. Birds. When birds. did they discernibly go from avian dinosaur to bird? 60 million years ago, according to fossils. Okay. Um, after the end of the Cretaceous period, which ended 65 million years ago, when the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. But to be clear, avian dinosaurs didn't go extinct, of course, because they evolved into birds. Yeah. And when I say avian dinosaur, you know what I mean, correct? Like many raptor-esque dinosaurs. Yeah. Type, some types. There, there was other types too. But yeah, yeah. There's there's certain types of dinosaurs that now we're starting to realize had feathers, all these things. Anyways, those are mm-hmm. the ancestors. 
Um, but to get a better estimate of when birds appeared as their own separate order, we decided we needed genetic data. Sure. Had to rely on the fossil record. So 2008 study looked at the mutation rates across lineages. They used a method where they measured the amount of divergence between different DNA samples. So basically just how different are they to okay. see how long ago lineages um, diverged. So it's like the, the, the more different they are, obviously they've been diverging for longer. Sure. Um, when, when they're trying to date biological events, uh, geneticists use the molecular clock is, is kind of the metaphor. Um, over long stretches of time, mutations tick at a constant rate. So just think about because the generations hand. are happening at a, at a fairly well, not consistent generations, rate. just mutations. How like how prevalent are mutations? How okay. Do they do they occur? Okay. This is just genetically they just happen at a very constant rate because it's an averages thing. Right. Right. So by measuring the number of mutations, you can pretty accurately estimate how far back in time a species diverged by just comparing the number, like ticks on a clock. Okay. How many ticks did yeah. this one do? How many ticks did that one do? Yeah, it may not be 100% accurate, but it gets you into the ballpark where... Especially when we're talking about millions and millions yeah, of years, exactly. right? That you don't sense. need to know down to the 100, you know, 100 years, yeah. Or to the year or month or day no, or yeah. something. Um, so anyways, they concluded avian, dino- or a- avian ancestors were actually about like 40 million years earlier than they thought. Okay. So now we're back at 100 million years ago, placing their emergence in the Cretaceous period. So we're getting closer to my 650 million. So how many more back can we go? But hold on. Oh. Since then, they've realized some assumptions were maybe a bit broad mm. and that different lines of birds mutated at different rates. Mm. So they don't have a better guess, but they said this might not be a good one. We can confidently say... It's probably somewhere between 60 million and 100 million years ago. Okay. And the likely thing is somewhere in the middle, like 80 million years ago. Sure. That birds diverge. Um, I got a little off track here. But let's go, let's let's get back on track um, and talk about the syrinx again. When did that evolve? Because obviously, if it hadn't evolved yet, birds couldn't sing yet. So we've got to figure that out. Um, so just a few years ago, um, there had been nothing done virtually on the origin or evolution of the way which birds make their songs. And it wasn't until October 2016 that that first kind of study came out where um, they reconstructed the voice box of an ancient bird. Vegavis I I. I don't know how you say a word that's I-A-A-I, but I I is what mm. I'm going with. Um, it lived in what is now Antarctica about 66 to 68 million years ago. Okay. And it was like a duck goose thing. A duck goose. It, it was in that group. So was, if, so if you're playing duck, duck, goose, it'd be hard to tell what, what yeah, you should do. If you could say that name that I just butchered, then you could use that in duck. You could just call duck it goose instead. duck goose. <laughs> So um, this Degovis I is not a new newly discovered species. Okay. The duck goose was discovered nice. on Vega Island in the Antarctic Peninsula over two decades ago. Okay. But it took a while to get it out properly. And it was identified as a new species in 2005. 
And it was a good thing they took their time getting it out because it was just super lucky that for the first time ever, the structure of the syrinx was still there. Okay. Because it's a soft tissue. It doesn't fossilize. Um, this is the first time anything like that's been found. So they scanned it with a micro CT and they printed a 3D model and Very they cool. compared it to like more recently extinct birds and like this is the oldest one ever found to clarify. Yeah. Um, and like extant birds, living birds. Um, and so they confidently guessed that this bird made honking and whistling noises uh, with its syrinx. And no evidence of a syrinx has ever been found in non-avian dinosaurs. Okay. T-Rex doesn't have syrinx. Um, only in avian dinosaurs and in birds. So the syrinx did evolve um, in the avian dinosaur ancestor to birds. Whatever the last common ancestor was of avian dinosaurs and birds had a syrinx. Okay. Um, they think... It's a, it's a guess for sure. But they think the syrinx came along sometimes during the Cretaceous. Um, so somewhere between 145 million years ago and maybe 100 million years ago, we would see the evolution of a syrinx. Very cool. Um, so researchers think it evolved after some of the respiratory innovations had already happened. Like the um, the breathing adaptations they need to be able to fly had already happened, and then the syrinx evolved. Um, the amazing diversity that they find in birds could be partly related to the, the evolution of the syrinx, um, just because of social, like just because of the more vocalizations you can do, the more social you can be, and the more social you can be, the more your brain um, tends to grow. Right, uh, as we've seen in. You know, humans, primates, that kind of thing. Lots of species. Yeah. Yeah. So on one last thing I wanted to mention um, mm. before I end this is that we might have gotten it wrong about birds until now, <laughs> recently. Are they still birds? Um, yeah, we got everything wrong, by the way. We're just going to rename They them. are um, just like humans is what you're trying to tell me. Okay. I was going to clarify. I was talking about the evolution of birdsong and females versus males. Got it. So... Female birdsong is much more common than we previously thought. Really? Especially in tropical species that defend year-round territories. So they did a really extensive like survey in 2014 um, that showed that females sing in over two-thirds of songbird species. Wow, that's a So lot. why why have we always thought of this as a primarily male trait? Um, so one cause could be that it's a ge- like a geographical bias. So as okay. I said, tropical females tend to sing. Yeah. Um, and temperate passerine species, and that's just a group of birds, passerine birds, that live in temperate climates usually, um, are disproportionately well studied. So like I was talking about the sparrow, white crowned sparrow mm, is yeah. a temperate passerine bird. So if almost all your research is in a certain type of bird and it turns out that temperate birds in general have a trend don't within have them. females that sing often yeah then right yeah so, you'll make assumptions that aren't universal to all the other groups exactly um and they think that even in tropical species female singing has been widely underreported so there's this bias in researchers minds that male birds sing 
Yeah, because we have this assumption of, well, sexual selection. Right. So many species with that have female song also have what's called sexually monomorphic plumage. So the males and the females look the same. Okay. And year-round territory defense by both sexes. So they're thinking that that you see a bird sing and you just assume it's a male. Right. But it could have been a female. We just had made assumptions. Um, and then considering how high the biodiversity of birds is in the tropics, we it might be that female singing is the rule, not the exception. Uh, phylogenetic studies that they did in 2014 also showed there is a sexual difference in singing behavior. That's the product of females losing the ability to sing rather than males gaining it. So like, um, trying to explain this there, there's a difference in evolution, Mm -hmm. um, with saying like this thing was only necessary for males and this thing is just less developed in females. Right, versus it developed in both and then one over time stopped participating, basically. Yeah, or it just kind of stayed at the same same level in females as the ancestral species was, and males have taken it to another level, basically. Okay. Um, so in the New World Blackbird family, Icteridae, if you care, um, for instance, when they do evolutionary reconstruction... Um, it, both sexes sang at similar rates in the ancestral groups and that since then female song has been lost multiple times like independently in different types of birds that have evolved from that. Okay. So the common ancestor they did sing and then some females have lost it. Not the common ancestor didn't sing and some males have gained it. Right. That's the difference there. Yeah. Um, so female song we think existed in the ancestor of all modern songbirds. So what we should be asking in these well-studied bird species that we know about is why females do not sing, not why do males sing. Right. So that's another W, why not. Um, It's a WN. So this doesn't necessarily alter the view of birdsong and the evolution through sexual selection. That's still a perfectly valid mechanism and explanation. Um, It's just... It just adds another level and another thing we should be looking into. So I think after all of my going on and on, kind of answered all the levels of the questions. Why do birds sing? You know, communicate, territory, mate, all that stuff. How did it evolve? Sexual selection. I know I didn't talk about it a whole lot, but I'm sure I will do an episode on sexual selection because it's awesome and Darwin is awesome. Um, And my final note is that I know a lot of thoughts seem to be left unfinished and and i agree <laughs> i can't be like oh this is cool and then they're like and that's all end of the story because no one's done that next study that we need so like and i don't know the number of things i said that happened 2014 2015 2016 so like yeah, those are very recent it's new it's breaking it's interesting and hopefully some real cool stuff breaks in the next decade you know um i have questions too <laughs> makes sense so that's going to be it for our episode on birdsong. Next episode is going to be pretty fun, I hope. We're going to talk about the World of Warcraft pandemic mm-hmm. and the parallels and quite interesting things and, and, that And by the way, that's not a pandemic of people playing World of Warcraft. That is a study of a pandemic that happened within World of Warcraft. 
which sounds silly, but it's real cool. It's very cool. Yeah. So thank you again for listening to Teach Me Something. Um, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Bye.